Are you really afraid to speak up these days? It feels like we're all walking on eggshells, uh, afraid that we're going to say something objectionable or offensive in this cancel culture where you, know, you feel like if you say anything, somebody's going to come after you, try to shut you down, silence you, censor you in some way. I mean, it may just be a minority of people who are trying to, to censor and silence us, but they're so intimidating and so powerful that we would call them, you know, the cancel mob. Has the cancel mob ever come after you? I mean, there's justifiable outrage over bad behavior, but I'm just talking about free speech issues. Somebody speaks out about something to do with race or sexuality or politics or religion, and all of a sudden, you know, you've been shut down. Free speech has been under attack more recently than any time that I can remember, and we're all Noticing uh, the people getting canceled all over the place or, or attempts to, like, you know, the most recent couple of ones were Whoopi Goldberg, right, suspended from The View for a couple weeks for something she said. And all those who are trying to get Joe Rogan's podcast uh, banned from Spotify for some things that he said. And uh, going after social media accounts, censoring them, shadow banning them, memory-holing people so that they just n- can't be heard anymore. And they'll employ all kind of tactics to do this, stigmatizing you, shaming you, bullying you, doxing you, threatening you, maybe even violence. You know, it it can be against politicians. It can be against commentators. It can be against um, anybody. It can be against celebrity. It can be against uh, somebody like a, a, a singer, like Adele, for saying that she enjoys being a woman. Right? Or for an author like J.K. Rowling for saying a man is not a woman. You know, the cancel mob comes after them, tries to, to get them banned for these controversial, seemingly controversial things. Cancel culture is about more than just criticism. It's about punishment. It's about trying to destroy people. And, and we're seeing it happen in the religious sphere as well. Religious speech has been under attack a lot more lately. It, it's, it's hate speech if you quote the Bible these days, and we just saw this in Canada, that it was written into law. You know, the Bible is mythology and it's hate speech if you quote certain parts of it that people find objectionable. Christians are afraid to speak up because it may get us ostracized or maybe even fired. Even preachers in some churches are afraid to teach the Bible because they think they might get fired for it. True enough. So, yeah, we should expect criticism, Because we are countercultural. But this is far beyond that, and it's nothing new. This cancel culture went after Jesus, didn't they? I mean, some Jewish authorities didn't like what Jesus was saying, what he was claiming to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh. So the mob went after him. Literally, the Jewish authorities stirred up a mob, drugged Jesus before uh, the judge, the authorities, and, and had the crowd cry out, crucify him. And sure enough, they got him canceled on Calvary's cross. But you can't cancel the gospel. I mean, the more they tried to stamp out Christianity, the farther it spreads. And what's interesting is that the Apostle Paul used to be one of those cancel culture guys, right? He was one of those authorities going around trying to shut down Christianity. He was trying to intimidate Christians into silence. He was trying to get them thrown into jail, have them put to death. 
making them all fearful until one day the Lord got a hold of Paul, Saul at the time, turned him around and made him into the greatest spokesman for Christianity. So the irony is Paul now is going around instead of stamping out churches, he's trying to start churches all over the Mediterranean world. And of course now it comes back on him. The cancel mob goes after Paul for some of the stuff he's saying, threatening him, harassing him, intimidating him to silence him. Really, they want to destroy Paul. That's what we've seen on this whole second missionary journey he's been on. So we'll put the map up there again this week. Uh, We're all the way over to the left side of the map now on the uh, Greek peninsula there toward the bottom. He's been through places like Thessalonica and Berea. Some people receive him and believe, other people reject him, and a mob runs him out of town. He was down in Athens last week, and the intellectual elites uh, mocked him. So he's going to head over now a little bit west to Corinth. So get your Bible open on your app or your lap to Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to give you the big idea right up front to keep speaking for Christ and don't be silent. All right. So in Acts 18, he's, he's now in Corinth which is another major cosmopolitan city, which was the capital of the whole region. Remember, Paul's strategy was to go to these big, important cities where the message could spread all over the area, and he would go to the Jewish synagogues first because the Jews should have been the most receptive to his message about Jesus being their Messiah, but we know that they often rejected him. Uh, But that's where he would go first, and... When they reject him, he would then turn to the non-Jewish people, the the Gentiles, or sometimes called the Greeks. So we're in Acts 18. Let's pick up in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth. And by the way, Corinth was not only a big cosmopolitan city, it was a very immoral and corrupt city. It had a bad reputation all over the place for... um, Not only all the idols, I mean, from our standpoint, that was bad. All the shrines to these gods and including the, the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, which is why they had tons of temple prostitutes everywhere. But it was a very corrupt city. Uh, all kinds of nasty, bad stuff going on there. And we know that because Paul will later write a couple of letters to the Corinthians, to the church that he starts there. And even the church is a mess, very dysfunctional because of its background. Verse 2, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. So the emperor had thrown the Jews out of Rome probably because of the Christians. They just viewed Christians as kind of a subset of the Jews and the Jews were always getting very hostile against the Christians for, you know, stirring up trouble, disturbing the peace. So they all got kicked out. And so Aquila and Priscilla are probably already Christians in the city of Rome, because Paul connects with them very quickly here in verse 3. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul is spending his time making tents. Why? So that he can support himself financially. Why? Because there's not a church there yet to support him. And he didn't want to ask people for any kind of financial help because the Corinthians were very used to a bunch of religious hucksters and scam artists coming through and, you know, uh, making a living off people's donations. And Paul didn't want to be uh, accused of, of taking money from anybody under those kinds of circumstances. Now, I think back, you know, South Point, uh, first of all, we support church planting. We have from day one. Uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, we talked about two of the church m- missions that we support, 
to start churches. And when we started, that church mission helped us get going. So Paul wasn't able to devote himself full-time to ministry. He had to make tents. I was blessed that I got a little bit of support, and I didn't have to make tents, whatever other job, so that I could devote myself full-time to this. So it's kind of a shame, I think, that Paul couldn't be supported and devote himself completely to the mission. But on the other hand, working at another job, like tent making or whatever you do, puts you in contact with people who need Jesus, right? That you're around people right now that I'll never probably be around. Well, maybe, maybe you'll bring them around here and then I'll be around them. But that's your mission field, right there where you work. Now, you may work at a job where they don't really want you to talk about religious stuff on the clock, right? And that's fine because you're there to please your employer, not to preach. But you can still be a witness for Jesus in all kinds of ways, in the way you do your job, in the way you conduct yourself, making yourself available if somebody wants to talk after hours or during a break, uh, offering to pray for people. So you don't have to be completely silent even on the job. Paul kept speaking about Jesus while he was making tents. So going back to verse 4 now. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So there he is again. He's explaining. He's uh, trying to prove reason with people because the gospel is reasonable. It's not just emotional or inspirational. He would, he would show them their own scriptures, how Jesus really is the promised Messiah. And there were also some Greeks there. In other words, there were Gentiles who believed the same way the Jews did, but they hadn't fully converted yet. In verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. So, you know, he had left behind his traveling companions, Silas and Timothy, in, in the previous churches that they started. They're going around up in their Macedonia area, strengthening them. But when they finally do show up in Corinth, they're not empty-handed. They got some money for Paul to support him so that now he doesn't have to make tents anymore. He puts away the... the the needle and the, and the leather, and he is able to totally be absorbed in preaching, in doing his mission work, spreading the gospel. And he, he's got some good helpers now with him too because we all need help. We can't do it alone. So Aquila and Priscilla, they become these very close friends of Paul's. Uh, he, he's very appreciative of them. They, they host a, home, a, a church right in their home. And it's just one of these examples of, of a, a, what I would call a spiritual power couple. You know, there's, there's couples like that in this church, husbands and wives, who really work together and do an awesome job for the Lord. And I'm just so grateful, not only for couples, for, for individuals here, because we can't do it alone. We, you know, all the, the, whether they're serving on staff as ministers or directors or administrators or as elders or deacons or anybody who's serving in any way or giving, we're all working together to get the mission done, Right? So Paul keeps on speaking, keeps testifying, Jesus is Messiah and Lord. And what's the kind of reaction he gets? Well, it's verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, there it is again, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Same old pattern. Goes to the Jews first. Some believe. Many reject him. And it gets to the point where it's threatening right, where they are now reviling him, they're being insulting to him, they are abusive to him, so Paul's not going to stay where he's not welcome, he's going to turn like he always does to the Gentiles, but before he does, he says to the Jews, he says, all right, you know, you had your chance, I did what the Lord sent me to do, 
I told you about Jesus. You don't want any part of it. So there's no blood on my hands. Your blood's on your own head. I came here to offer you the best news ever, and you're, you're kicking me out of here. All right, that's on you. And I can't help but think of what's going to happen to people like that on Judgment Day who were given that kind of opportunity and turned it down. How severe it's going to be for them because they're not going to be able to say, Lord, I didn't know. Oh, yeah, you did. I sent you someone and you turned them out. But then again, I think about on Judgment Day what it's going to be like for people like me who missed so many opportunities. Times when I could have shared the gospel, that I should have shared it, and I didn't. And that's why this poem has stuck with me throughout my whole adult life. I've shared it before, but it's been a long time. It goes like this. My friend, I stand in judgment now and feel that you're to blame somehow. While on this earth I walked with you day by day, never did you point the way. You knew the Lord in truth and glory, but you never did tell me the story. And though we live together here on earth, you never told me of a second birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention Him. You taught me many things, that's true. I called you friend and trusted you. But now I learn now it's too late. You could have kept me from this fate. Yes, I called you friend in life and I trusted you in joy and strife. Yet in coming to this end, I see you never really were my friend. Man, I do not want to have blood on my hands like that. God forgive me for all the times when I should have said something, but I kept my mouth shut. Help me to do better. Because some people are going to believe, some people are going to reject, but everybody should get an opportunity to hear about Jesus at least once. But you're never going to know until you try. You know, Paul did what Jesus told his disciples to do when they get rejected, Matthew 10. Jesus says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, well, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. That's what Paul does, except he doesn't get out of town because there's no mob yet, but he does move on and moves in right next door to that synagogue, verses 7 and 8. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul doesn't get to speak in the synagogue anymore, but he still gets to lead the synagogue ruler to Christ. I mean, well, that's a big deal. That's an influential guy. And so a lot of people come to faith and are baptized. And it's so important that we teach the plan of salvation accurately and follow what the early Christians did and baptize them immediately upon their profession of faith. Not wait and postpone it to another time because baptism is a crucial part of the great commission Jesus gave us. For example, Mark 16, he says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And Paul did just that. In fact, Paul himself was baptized for that very purpose when the Lord sent a man named Ananias to him who said in Acts 22, rise and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Have you experienced that yourself? And I don't mean as a baby because babies can't call on the Lord. I'm talking about making your own decision 
to be immersed into Christ. Paul baptized some people, but not everyone in Corinth. In fact, he later recalls in 1 Corinthians 1, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And by the way, some people think Gaius is just another name for Titus Justice. Because in Romans he says, I stayed at the home of Gaius. And that's, it's in Corinth. So it's probably, this, probably the same guy. But notice Paul says he only personally baptized a few people. Not everybody. Why? Because it wasn't important? No. He says, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. See, because some people will say, well, baptism's not really that big of a deal because Paul didn't baptize. In fact, they love to quote the next thing he says. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. See, it's not important. No, 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 just the opposite. Baptism is so important that people were going around apparently claiming spiritual superiority because Paul was the one that baptized them instead of somebody else. It was stirring up division in the church. So much that Paul had to call him out for it. And he says, was Paul crucified for you? Or are you baptized in the name of Paul? No, it's not about Paul, it's about Jesus. It doesn't say they weren't being baptized, just that Paul wasn't the one doing it to prevent that kind of nonsense from going on. He did the same thing Jesus did in John 4. Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Can you imagine the spiritual big head people would have? Like, I was baptized by Jesus, right? Around here, I do very few baptisms. And it's not like people around here are going, Haha, look at me, Brett baptized me, oh yeah. That ain't happening. <laughs> That's not an issue. Uh, it's because my ministry is, is preaching. I like to let other people have the joy of doing the baptisms. Why should I hog all that? I love to see, you know, spouses baptizing spouses or some baptizing parents and children, baptizing friends. I want everybody to be able to experience that. And the truth is, baptism isn't something I do or you do or anybody does. It's not a human work, which is where people get messed up in baptism. They think, oh, that can have nothing to do with salvation because that's a work. It ain't your work. It's God's work. He's the one doing the work in you. We're saved by grace through faith in baptism it's the normal biblical time or occasion for receiving the promises of god of salvation forgiveness the gift of the holy spirit cleansing washing away your sins being covered with christ identified with him in his death burial and resurrection it's a big deal and so paul's witness is so effective that it's stirring up a lot of jewish jealousy and fury to the point where he's probably now afraid for his life again there's going to be a mob i better get out of dodge because the lord has to intervene here and show up and encourage him in verses 9 through 11 and the lord said to paul one night in a vision do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent that's our big idea for i am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for i have many in this city who are my people and he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Keep speaking for Christ and don't be silent. Paul usually has to get out of town quick, but he gets to stay there for a full year and a half evangelizing, teaching Scripture, because God said, I got a lot of people in this city, don't worry. God already foreknew who was going to become Christians, and it would be a lot. 
It's not that God caused people to become Christians. His foreknowledge knows who's going to choose to receive Christ and who's going to reject Christ. He doesn't make you accept Christ. That's your choice. But God says to him, Paul, don't leave. You do your job and tell them. They do their job and believe. I'll do my job and save them. And that's true for us today as well. And the Lord says to us, just like he did Paul and throughout Scripture, fear not, right? Be bold. Be courageous. I'm with you. He's not promising to keep us from all pain and conflict. Now, we got the Great Commission, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And for an example, the writer here gives us the time when the Jewish people there as well tried to get Paul arrested, get Christianity declared illegal because there's a new ruler in town who gets installed in AD 51 whose name is Gallio. Verses 12 and 13. But when Gallio was proconsul, and that's like the chief judicial officer of Achaia, the whole region, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. This wasn't just impulsive mob violence. Now, this is a coordinated conspiracy to get Paul canceled, right? They, they bring up the same fanatical charge that is brought up in all these other places that what he's doing is against Roman law. No, it wasn't. Never was. And that's what they tried to get Jesus arrested for, brought before Pontius Pilate. He's breaking the law. Pilate says, no, he's not. But they brought him Paul to this tribunal, which was like a raised platform out in the open marketplace. And we know that because you can still go to Corinth and see it. It got excavated. See where he was on trial. And Paul is a Roman citizen. He's standing there. He's ready to defend his rights. He's got rights. But he doesn't have to because look at what happens. Verses 14 through 16. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I'd have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. <laughs> uh, Gallio, the Roman judge, defended Paul because he saw through their smokescreen that this wasn't about law, this was about religion. And he not only threw out the case, but he kicked out the plaintiffs. Christians had a legal right to preach Jesus. That's, that was true all over the area now. And ironically, because they're still so mad, instead of beating up Paul, they turn on one of their own, the guy who took over from Christmas, the guy now running the synagogue and probably orchestrating this attack. His name is Sosthenes in verse 17. They all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, what do you think Sosthenes thinks of this? I'm the guy trying to help you. And you beat me up? Fine. I'm switching teams. Sosthenes becomes a Christian. I mean, we know that because Paul later writes to the Corinthians that Sosthenes is with me. I mean, it could theoretically be a different Sosthenes, but how many Sosthenes are there? Especially in Corinth. I don't know. But it's possible that when you respond to people who are hostile to you, who, who, who disrespect you, who 
Be kind to them. You never know when they might switch teams. The way you respond can soften their heart so they later turn to Christ. Your good deeds can open the door for the good news. Now another historical irony here is that Gallio's brother, Seneca, is in Rome tutoring young Nero who will grow to become the next emperor of Rome and has Paul executed. <laughs> now, at this point, what about us and our government? Well, well, government's still tolerating us, not favoring us like it used to, but they still recognize our rights to speak out, and yet I still have this foreboding, and I think a lot of us do, that this culture is changing so much and so fast and turning against the church so much that we think that our rights are not long from being stripped from us, like in other nations where Christians are forced to remain silent and go underground. I mean, you may be aware of a trial going on right now in Finland of two Christians who are being brought up on charges of hate speech. In fact, the actual, the actual charge is ethnic agitation. Why? For quoting the Bible about marriage in a pamphlet. And the, one is a member of parliament. She wrote the pamphlet. The other is a Lutheran bishop who retweeted it. And if they're convicted, they'll go to prison for two years just for quoting the Bible. In China, you know, not only have they been cracking down on churches and closing them down, but you are not allowed, as a Christian parent, to teach your child Christianity. You're not allowed to bring them to church. All across the Muslim Middle East, if you speak out and identify yourself as a Christian, you risk your life. In India, mobs will form and burn down your church and beat up the members of that church or put them to death. That's why we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world and supporting them. But you're saying, well, that's over there. It could never happen here. How many times have we said that? Of course it could happen here. That's the norm for Christianity throughout the centuries. Persecution. How long is it going to be until they muzzle preachers here? I mean, universities already discriminate Christians in many ways. How long until we get banned from teaching the Bible online? How long until Christians are banned from running for political office or being judges or serving in the military because our views are just not acceptable? What we believe is objectionable to society. We can't have that. How long will it be until society completely turns against us and tries to cancel us for disturbing the peace and blocking societal progress. Should we be surprised when our neighbors turn against us? No. But keep speaking for Christ and don't be silent because some are still going to believe. Some will be dismissive and ignore us and others, yeah, may turn hostile against us, maybe even violent, threaten us. Why? Because we're shining the light into the darkness and nobody wants that. Right? Nobody wants the message we've got. Nobody wants to hear about their sin or their accountability to God or a coming judgment day. No, no, no. We don't want to hear any of that. And so they're going to try and stifle us because it's offensive. It's an offensive message. 
But we don't have to be offensive in the way we present it. We're doing it out of love because we care about them. And so we'll respond with kindness. And don't apologize for your faith. Speak up, but do it with kindness, wisdom, tact. We're not going to shove it down anybody's throat. We're not going to blast bullhorns in their face. We're not going to go where we're not wanted. But we're not going to stop speaking because you can't cancel the gospel. So I want to take the last few minutes here to talk about some other places around the world, the missions that we support. We've talked about church planting already, starting new churches. We've talked about compassion outreach, meeting physical and material needs with the hope of directing people to Jesus. The third one today is about global evangelism, all the other ways of sending out ministers and missionaries around the world. So let me talk about two more of these today. First, Brad and Tammy Harvey. Uh, there are three children up there as well with them. Brad is a language specialist who has been in Central and East Africa as long as I have been here. And uh, we have supported him from day one in translating the scriptures into languages of people who don't have the Bible. And Brad and Tammy were just here a few months ago. Uh, they've been in the U.S. for quite a while. He's been working remotely, you know, doing translation work on the book of Exodus with the Africa team via Zoom, but they finally got approved to go back to Africa now in a couple weeks, so that's good. He'll be there on-site in person doing the consulting checking on the book of Exodus uh, among the Omaraz people. That's the language that they're translating into, but truly, that's not the language because we can't tell you what it is because it's dangerous. If it were to get out, uh, they could be in trouble because they are a very small Christian minority in that country. So the um, Harveys just recently wrote and said, we're extremely grateful for our financial support. It's remained steady throughout the pandemic. However, we depleted our financial reserves in assisting nationals in Africa with medical and funeral expenses during the pandemic. And these needs uh, will remain high as there is no unemployment compensation in Africa. We also anticipate increased travel expenses for COVID compliance, Tammy's research, Brad's consultant trips, current inflation, and a weakening dollar will also squeeze the budget. So you can see how important it is that we continue to support the Harveys. The second one I want to talk about today is His House Christian Fellowship, which is a university ministry throughout Michigan on 12 campuses. Now, again, universities used to be the place where free speech was protected, but now it's more notorious for political correctness and safe zones where we can't, we, don't talk to us, don't say anything, don't offend us, don't hurt our feelings. So it can be very difficult living in that kind of environment as a Christian today. So I want you to hear from this video, uh, Scott Austin of his house. Good morning, uh, my name is Scott Austin and I'm the executive director for His House Christian Fellowship. Uh, his house is a campus ministry on 12 university campuses in Michigan at Michigan Tech, Northern Michigan University, Lake Superior State University, Northwestern Michigan College, Ferris State, Grand Valley State, Western Michigan State, Central, Saginaw Valley, University of Michigan, and Eastern Michigan Universities. Um, we have staff on each of these campuses leading uh, groups of students uh, who are then being challenged to grow uh, in their faith and uh, in turn reach their fellow students for Jesus. 
Uh, thank you so much for your support, your financial support and your prayers make a big difference in helping us reach these college campuses for Jesus. I've got a couple of quick stories I'd like to share with you. Uh, you may know that we relaunched our campus ministry at the University of Michigan in fall of 2021, uh, putting two new staff there. And that's been a growing campus ministry. A year ago, we had zero students involved. Uh, now we have between 10 and 15. Uh, we also uh, got six or seven of those students to our winter retreat a couple weekends ago. And uh, I was super excited to see someone from the University of Michigan come forward at our invitation time to be baptized. Um, it's just a really exciting th thing to see some uh, first fruits uh, from our investment there. And uh, we are eager uh, to see that grow and, and flourish. Uh, another um, fun story is... Uh, Shortly after the retreat at Northern Michigan University, um, a bunch of guys there got together for men's Bible study, which they do every Thursday night. And uh, after that, one of the guys went home to his, uh, his apartment or his dorm room and got to talk with his roommate and sat down and shared the gospel with him. And uh, the roommate wanted to uh, follow Jesus. So um, they went out with uh, 20 of their closest friends out to Lake Superior uh, to baptize them, which was uh, super exciting. Uh, however, it was a little scary because Lake Superior is really cold right now. Um, but uh, uh, the student's going to walk with Jesus, but he doesn't have to meet Jesus right now. Um, a third story is uh, we have a uh, a thriving international student ministry in various places. And uh, recently we had a, a student from Pakistan um, leave behind her, uh, her Muslim uh, faith and, uh, and, and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, and she was baptized into him. And this presents a lot of problems because she is required to go back to Pakistan and is very concerned about uh, what she's going to face there, uh, turning away from following the religion of her, her family and her country. But uh, she's eager uh, to follow Jesus and excited for what that's going to bring for her. So um, thank you again. I uh, really appreciate all you do um, in your community and uh, in, on college campuses through your prayers and your financial support. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Now, yeah. You say, well, that, you're talking about global evangelism. That's right here in Michigan. Yeah, but people from all over the world come to Michigan universities, and we're sending them back. So what you give starting tomorrow through next Sunday is all going to go to support the missions for a full year. Okay, not today, but for the next week, every dollar you give online, through the app, uh, in the boxes, in the mail, will go to support the great work that these missions are doing this celebration of generosity, uh, but not today. Today, whatever you give still goes to God's work right here through this local church in winning Downriver Christ. And thank you for your generosity because we can't do it without you. All right, so a couple ways to respond to what you've just heard. If you're not a Christian, by the way, we tell our guests don't give anything, don't do anything, just sit back, relax, enjoy the service. I'm going to offer you something though in just a moment. If you're a Christian, uh, this is a communion time. So when you come in, you get the cup uh, that has the, the juice and the bread in it uh, to uh, eat and drink this together to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. And you know, um, outside of Jesus' own words, Paul tells us more about communion than anybody, and he, he writes it to the Corinthians. 
Here's what he says in chapter 11 of that first letter. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's what you're going to do in the next few moments. After we pray, you're going to have some quiet time, some music playing, uh, peel back the covers, and share together in this memorial meal. If you're not a believer, though, this time is for you to either just think, reflect, pray. It's a quiet time, but I would encourage you to do something even better than that, and that's to make the decision to follow Christ. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, repented of your sins, been baptized, you can do that here today because I'm going to have a couple friends up here who would be happy to talk with you, to answer your questions, to help you with your next step, whatever it is. Come down while the music is playing. They'd be happy to meet with you. If you're watching online, text us. You can text here as well or email us. We're going to put that on the screen in just a moment and uh, encourage you to start this new journey, this new life uh, with Jesus Christ. All right? So let's pray together. Father God, we want to thank you for this time of communion, for what it represents. We want to pray for our, our own individual spiritual health and growth. Pray for our church's spiritual health and growth. And pray for, for any physical health needs, God. Anybody who's in pain, anybody who's sick, we ask for healing. We want to pray for those who are experiencing worry, fear. Uh, God, that they know that you're with them. Uh, God, we, would you meet the needs of those who are sharing the good news of Jesus right here and around the world? We pray for the ministry of the Harveys in Africa. We pray for his house. And all these universities, God, that they will reach a lot of people for Jesus. We pray for the people in our own lives. If you would impress on us right now, bring to mind the names of people in our family, our friends, neighbors, coworkers, anybody who needs Jesus, that you would give us opportunities, give us the words to, to let them know. God, raise up more missionaries, more Pauls and Timothys and Silas's and uh, Priscilla and Aquilas, God, to assist in the work. And I pray right now that there are going to be people who call on your name to receive Jesus and are baptized, God, that you would change hearts. Through Christ we pray it. Amen. You can come